The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we are going through the book of Acts, having a delightful time. We are now in chapter 5, if you, and on your bulletin is the roadmap for today. The title of today's sermon is Trial and Blessing, Life in the Early Church. Acts chapter 5, 12 through 42. 12 through 42. Really? 12 through That is a lot of verses. 12 through 42. But it's in narrative form. It's a story. It can't be, at least I didn't think it could be broken up and chopped into pieces because it's an entity into itself. It's one story beginning to end. Climax conclusion. So I wanted to keep it intact as Luke wrote it. And there is a, there's a lot of verses there, but there is one theme winding its way through that passage. One of the themes that surfaces as you read it is what the early church faced, and that was early on trial and blessing, trial and blessing. The trials are, at this point, that we've seen in the book of Acts, persecution from without the church, from the outside. And that's what we're going to see in Acts 5 today, another trial. Satan tries to attack and destroy the church from those outside, those hostile to the faith, critics of the faith, those who don't like the name of Jesus. And one of the trials already that we saw last week was not just trials from without, but trials from within the church. Sin or compromise among believers or at least professing believers. And as the book of Acts goes on, as Luke records its history and development, those two remain constant themes in balance. That's the life of the church, trial and blessing. And one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Acts is this incremental increase in hostility towards the church and persecution. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, we had the day of Pentecost, the church is born, Glorious, 3,000 people get saved after Peter, Peter preaches that amazing gospel message. And they baptize 3,000 on one day. They join the church. And then Luke gives a summary. Man, everything was great. The body of Christ was one. They were united. The apostles were doing amazing miracles. And even those that were spectators watching from outside had respect for these Christians, respect for the apostles, and respect for the church. So Acts 2.47, Luke's summary statement was, the early church had favor with all the people. And Luke wasn't talking about the Christians. He's saying the perspective of those surrounding the church in Jerusalem, unbelieving Jews, they looked upon the church early on and they had favor with all the people. But then we saw that didn't last long. Church was only a few weeks old and then there's external persecution from the leadership of the Jews via the Sanhedrin and through John and Peter in jail or locked them away somewhere for a night and then they put them on trial and reprimanded them. Do not speak in that name ever again. And then they let them go. And then Peter and John and the apostles keep speaking in that name. The Sadducees hated Jesus so much and the Sanhedrin, including the Pharisees, they couldn't even speak the name of Jesus. They said, that name. That man. And that's actually true of 
unbelievers today, they don't, they can't handle the name of Jesus. But no longer are unbelievers viewing the church with favor. The persecution is going to mount and rise at a fever pitch. Persecution just started with two guys, Peter and John. And the consequence was simply reprimanding them. Don't do that again. Stop preaching. And then the persecution and hostility increases all the more to today's story, where it's going to be more. Now it's more than just Peter and John. Now it's all 12 apostles are arrested, put on trial. And again, reprimanded, don't preach in that name, and then physically abused. And then let go, and then we're going to see in the next chapter. Then it's not just Peter, John, and the other ten apostles. It's other men in the leadership, Stephen. And the punishment and the consequences rise. It's not just a reprimand and flogging. It is death. And then we go to the next few chapters, and the persecution mounts and increases all the more. And it's not just the apostles and their leadership with a reprimand. It's now... Every Christian is subject to persecution in Jerusalem and the surrounding environs from these very hostile, unbelieving Jews known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So we're going to see that this increase. So before we get to the details of John, uh, Acts chapter 5, 12 through 42, if you have your Bible, look at John chapter 7. So John chapter 7 could be maybe midway into Jesus' training of the 12 apostles. And in verse 1 it says, at this point in his ministry, unbelieving Jews wanted to kill him, the end of verse 1. This is the Jewish leadership. Verse 7. Jesus says in verse 7, he, he's promising his disciples and the apostles. This is part of their training, their seminary education. In verse 7, he says, the world hates me. John 7, verse 7, the world hates, present tense, the, wor- the unbelieving world hates me. Present tense, uh, this will continue, this will always be, this will never change. Boy, if we as Christians could just take that phrase, ingrain that in our brain, and make that a permanent part of our worldview. The world, the unbelieving world hates Jesus. Hasn't changed, not going to change. Not uh, until Jesus comes again. Then at the end of his ministry, Jesus is still working with his disciples. Uh, They're still in seminary uh, as he prepares them. And then if you'd go to John 15, same book. Now it's the last week of his life. He's modeled training. He's preached to them. They're about ready to graduate. And so now he doesn't just say the world hates me like he did in John 7. Now he can give them this promise in John 15. 19. You're about to go. I'm about to go, die, go to heaven, uh, be gone and leave you here in my place to take over for me, to be the leadership, to establish the church, to spearhead things. But you need to know this. Verse 17, command you love one another. And then verse 19, at the end of verse 19, he says, the world hates you. Present tense. This is continual. This is ongoing. This is how it will always be. The unbelieving world hates you, Christians, because of what you believe, because of your love for Jesus. The world hates Jesus. That hasn't changed. This is at the heart of the motivation 
of the hostility towards the early church and Christians that we're going to see in Acts chapter 5. So let's go ahead and go there. Why do these people have such utter visceral hatred, literally, for Jesus' apostles? Well, Jesus warned us. The world hates me. The world hates you. It's been that way for 2,000 years, and that's the way it is today. If you are a bona fide, born-again, Bible-believing Christian who lives in accordance with your convictions and biblical truth, this stands true for you. The world hates you. And we need to know how to live in light of that truth. That's why the book of Acts is so helpful. Because we look at the model, the model of the apostles. How did they live? How did they deal with persecution? How did they deal with hostility and hatred of those who hated the name of Christ? And, and the church as well, not just the apostles. How did they live? How was it emulated in addition to what the apostles ended up writing in the rest of the New Testament about, about to Christians about how to deal with persecution? It's all over the New Testament. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Acts chapter 5 now. What happened after Ananias and Sapphira who dropped dead in the presence of the apostles, and then they were buried immediately for lying to the Holy Spirit by lying to the apostles about what they were going to give, that the word spread quickly throughout the entire church, which at this point was thousands of people who made up the early church of Jerusalem, 3,000 plus the 5,000 men plus the 5,000 women. So you're looking at a mega church in Jerusalem, of 10, 13, 15,000 plus people, plus those phrases where Luke says the Lord was adding to the saints daily, to the church daily. So you've got a mega church of about 20,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. The church probably isn't even hardly a couple of months old. And they, they don't have a building, so they're meeting in the upper room, people's homes, and and also in the temple square at Solomon's porch, which could, could accommodate hundreds and hundreds of people in public, broad daylight, and the Christians, they're meeting there every day. The apostles are meeting there, teaching there every day publicly on the temple grounds, which is really the responsibility and oversight of the Jewish leadership, especially the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the Jewish leaders who were responsible and had the authority over the precincts of the entire temple area. So they had jurisdiction over Solomon's porch and everything else within the temple, and there are the apostles preaching Jesus publicly in Solomon's porch every single day without permission of the leadership of the Sadducees. As a matter of fact, at this point now, it is in utter defiance of the conjured up ad hoc law that the Sadducees made that you can't preach about that name anymore. But they're doing it anyway. So that's the context. So, so here we are. And Ananias and Sapphira, professing Christians, drop dead in church. And the response from the immediate Christian community was there was fear. There was fear. We serve a loving God, a saving God, but we also serve a holy God and an all-knowing God. We can hide nothing from him. So this was a healthy fear. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 5, verse 12. And so I broke this section up just into six main sections or paragraphs with just one key word that kind of summarizes what's happening in that part of the story. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at the first part of the story where it continues after Ananias and Sapphira. And there was great fear among people in the church. But the word got out into the community as well that, wow, you know, over at that new sect, that those Christian people that follow those apostle guys that meet in Solomon's porch every day where now there's thousands and thousands of people gathering and the apostles like do miracles and stuff. 
That's kind of cool. And people are actually being healed, apparently. But if you affiliate, boy, I don't know if I'd affiliate with that organization if I were you, because people drop dead. Compromisers drop dead in their midst. I, I don't know if I want to go visit that place. That's literally what's happening. And the text tells us that. So that's the context. Uh, let's go ahead and look at verses 12 through 16. Uh, the key word here is sovereignty, sovereignty. So there's this great fear, this uh, awe that, wow, God strikes people dead on the spot for their sin. I don't want to join that church. Whoa. And that's kind of scary. And if you talk about a scary God and a God of wrath and a God of holiness and a God who punishes sin via death, then surely that's going to squelch growth with that organization. Nobody's going to go to a church where there's a holy God and a God of wrath who punishes sin. That doesn't help church growth. We want to go to a happy place. Happy church, not holy church. And that indeed is the thinking of surrounding unbelievers. I am not affiliating with that organization. But that isn't how God works. He uses wrath and those kind of things to reveal his true nature. His wrath is perfect, by the way. He never sins in his wrath. And it complements all of his other attributes. He is, he is loving. He's gracious. He's patient. He's forgiving. He is holy. He is wrathful. That is God. That's how he's revealed himself That's his very nature. And he's also sovereign. And people having fear and an unwillingness to go affiliate with the church is not going to stop God from fulfilling his promise of growing the church. Jesus said to his apostles just before his death, I will build my church. It will continue to grow all throughout church history, despite persecution, despite sin and compromise within the church, and despite God's wrath that becomes evident among the people. God will continue to build his church. God is sovereign. It's his church. So that's why you just see the act of sovereignty all throughout this passage in these few verses. Sovereignty. If you take the word sovereignty, there is a word, a smaller word inside sovereignty, and it's sovereign. That's a good definition of, or actually even a smaller word is reign. Reign. God reigns as king. God reigns with ultimate total authority. That's what sovereign means. God is totally in charge of Everything there. There is no coincidence in life. There is no luck in life. Everything happens for a purpose. Everything happens under the purview of God, who is the king, who reigns supreme and is control of all things, the good and the bad. And you see that evident here. So let's go ahead and look at it. Ananias and Sapphira died. Verse 11, there was great fear that came upon the whole church and the entire community. Verse 12, and at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. This is about the third time that Luke has reported this early in the church. At the hands of the apostles, the hand means the authority of the apostles. At the leadership of the apostles, the delegated authority to the apostles, they were doing miracles. Three specific words, signs, wonders, mighty deeds is also used in a couple of the passages. Primarily is happening with the apostles. So not every Christian was doing these miracles. Paul said in Corinthians that everybody has different spiritual gifts. The apostles had the spiritual gift of being able to do miracles, to validate, to show they were spokespersons of Jesus. It validated their ministry. Those were the marks of an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The marks, the credentials of an apostle. And there were other select, very few Christians, non-apostles, who had the spiritual gift of miracles, dunamis, powerful signs, healing, casting out demons. That's 1 Corinthians 12. And other places. And that was the select few. That's not every Christian. I don't have this power. I don't have these gifts. I have gifts, but not these ones. I'm not an apostle. I'm not an associate of apostle. Because Stephen is going to... Stephen, who is not an apostle, has this ability. 
we'll see that in the next chapter. So anyway, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. This is publicly, by the way, they are meeting every single day in the temple precincts over there on the eastern side of that big porch called Solomon's porch where anybody could go. Anybody could see it. It was on the public eye. It was under the purview of the Sadducees who were there on the temple ground every day. And they could see this growing bastion of Christians, this group growing bigger and bigger and bigger every day and swelling to the point that they are swelling out onto the streets, flooding the very temple area. And this is where the apostles are doing miracles, visibly, publicly to be seen. That's what the word sign means in Greek, something that could be visibly seen. It wasn't some shady so-called miracle that happens in a corner behind the scenes and nobody sees it and can't be validated. This was open to the public eye. And they were undeniable, these miracles. And the Sadducees, no doubt, and the Sanhedrin are seeing miracles take place. That is what's so amazing when they go to trial. When they put the apostles on trial, they don't even say anything about the miracles. The miracles were undeniable. And the Sadducees saw Jesus do miracles as well. And at first they didn't know what to think about the miracles. Because after all, in their theology, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in miracles. That's a problem. The Sadducees were different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees, who ran the temple and the Sanhedrin, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in miracles. And they did not believe in resurrection. Miracles, angels, resurrection. Guess what? Those three are dominant themes in this story. In the face of the Sadducees who denied it all. So if you don't believe in miracles... According to your theology, you've got to tweak your theology. And so if there is a miracle happening, you've got to attribute it to magic or the occult or the devil or say that you are being inspired by Satan himself. And that is exactly what the Sadducees said about Jesus. Unbelievable. That's what they're going to do. So let's look at it. At the hands of the apostles, these signs and wonders are taking place among all of the people. And it says they were all with one accord. So the, the church of Christ is still united. God had to... Prune a little bit with Ananias and Sapphira, but they have unity. They have harmony and they are publicly out in Solomon's portico every single day. Verse 13, but none of the rest, that's those outside the church who heard about Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. They, none of them dare to associate with the Christians based on superficial belief or just fascination wasn't worth it. However, these people in Jerusalem who weren't yet a part of the church, they held the Christians and the apostles in high esteem. They couldn't deny that miracles were happening. They couldn't deny that, oh, my, my cousin has been changed and he was a leper and he's healed. I can't deny that. Verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord. Get this. So despite the fear and the unwillingness of many to affiliate with the church, nevertheless, God is sovereign. He is in control. He will fulfill his promise. He continues to grow the church, and he does. People say, well, you can't plant a church in the Silicon Valley. It's so secular and hostile to Christianity, and the values fly in the face of the Bible, and you can't really grow a church here and thrive as a Christian here. Yeah, you can, because God is sovereign, right? I will build my church. God is in control. And all the more, so here's God's sovereignty in action. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes, you know what that means? Multitudes is Luke at first, he's, he's counting, keeping track. Okay. The first day, wait, how many, there were 3000 people that got baptized that day. Wow. And then the next passage. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of people. Okay. We'll just say 5,000 men and we won't include the 5,000 women and other people. And then it gets to a point where there are so many people who have gotten saved, joined the church. Luke can't even keep track anymore because it's already exceeded 20,000. And so now he will continue to give this refrain, like he does in verse 14, of multitudes were added to the church 
It was just growing and growing. And he says, multitudes of men and women. He includes men and women because men and women are equally made in the image of God. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Men and women. And so Luke keeps saying that. Uh, so he'll say this throughout his book as he keeps giving us updates. Men and women added to the church. And then when there's persecution, uh, Saul went after men and women in the church to throw them into prison, some even to kill. And verse 14, they were constantly being added to their number. That's God. God is in charge. He is growing. The apostles aren't growing the church. People aren't growing the church. Gimmicks aren't growing the church. Almighty, sovereign God is growing the church. He is being faithful. Verse 15, to such an extent... That they even carried sick people out into the streets. These are public thoroughfares in Jerusalem. And they laid the sick people on cots and pallets like stretchers. They're carrying sick people out on stretchers from all over the place. So that when, so because of all these miracles that are going on, it says not just Peter, Peter and all the apostles were doing miracles. Signs, wonders, healing, casting out demons, word gets out. And so they are just smothering down in Jerusalem where the apostles are, and they are carrying people from beyond the vicinity even of Jerusalem with all these sick people. So can you imagine? They're taking lepers. They are taking crippled people. They are taking demoniacs out trying to find the apostles, and they have the gall to even bring them onto the temple grounds and the temple precinct and over into Solomon's court, which the Sadducees would have considered many of these people unclean. What are you doing with these lepers here? Get them out of here. That's what they're thinking. And yet they're going and the apostles are healing them. Stephen may have been involved in the healing as well because he was doing miracles. And there are so many people just flooding the apostles, the temple uh, to get healed. That Peter became inaccessible. I mean, imagine you've got thousands, you've got 20,000 people over there in a big old huddle. And then how are you in the world going to get to the center where the apostles are? And so they're just hoping that, man, if I could just touch his garment, if I could just uh, be in Peter's shadow, maybe I will get healed. That's what it says. It's amazing. So many people on pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And they're believing that they might be getting healed. Kind of like when the woman who just trying to get through the crowd said, well, I'm never going to get to Jesus. If I could just touch his garment and she reached out, she touched the hem of his garment. and She got healed. It wasn't magic. It wasn't based on her faith. God did the miracle under his conditions. And this was typical of Jesus. Jesus didn't do miracles all the same way, one way. He healed, all, he healed people from a distance that he didn't even know, see. Your, your son is healed, lives miles away. Or with a word, be healed. Or with a touch, as he touches the leper, which you're not supposed to do. He's healed. Or with the hem of his garment that was touched by someone else. He's, well, the apostles are replicating this miracle to validate They are ambassadors, legitimate representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, validating the truth of their message, the gospel. So people are coming out and being healed. Verse 16, also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So the gospel message is beginning to spread beyond Jerusalem, which was a massive city at that time. And that fulfills the promise of Jesus. Be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea. And out from there, and that's what's happening right here. God is honoring that, bringing people who are sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, demon-possessed, and they were all being 
healed. That doesn't happen today with our phony healers who claim to heal in the name of Jesus. They don't heal all sick people. They're selective. It's on their terms. It's under their conditions. It's limited. It's for a buck. They aren't apostles. So be discerning. Amazing. God is sovereign. He continues to grow his church. So uh, let's go on to point number two, and that is God's sovereignty at work, which is an amazing good thing, and that gives us peace. We can stand on that. And then there's the opposition, and that's jealousy. Number two, jealousy, 17 to 23. Uh, the Jewish leaders arrest the apostles. So can you imagine? So the public spectacle of Christians gathering together at the church, thousands, mushrooming to over 20,000, sick people being brought in to the city of Jerusalem from Jerusalem and beyond. Can't even imagine what the traffic must have looked like or what the public expected. This is in broad day, this is happening. And the people getting healed, they are rejoicing, celebrating. My, my son who had leprosy, he is healed. Thank you, Yahweh. Thank you, apostles. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Peter. This is cause for celebration. This was predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah and his associates would be able to do this. This is in the Bible. And yet those who are stewards of the Old Testament scripture, the Bible, that is not their reaction when they see all these miracles. They should be rejoicing, praising God. Oh, the hospitals are being emptied and all these amazing miracles right before. Our eyes. Man, this is incredible. Just like the Old Testament. These guys, by the way, they couldn't do miracles. They had no ability to do miracles, these leaders. And yet they're seeing these amazing miracles happening through the hands of the apostles. And instead of the response of rejoicing, praising God, verse 17 says they were jealous. That's their response. They are filled with zeal, is the Greek word. That's a mindless emotional passion that can vent itself in many ways, in this case through anger and rage. So verse 17, the high priest, the high priest, probably it could be Annas or Caiaphas. Annas was technically retired, but he just couldn't get his hands out of it. And so this should be Caiaphas, the same high priest who condemned Jesus to death just two months prior. Sadducee. So the high priest rose up, meaning he took action. He is going to put this to a stop. Do you see what is going on over there in the Solomon's? We, we need to stop this now. I will take this into my own hands says Caiaphas or Anabas, whoever the high priest is, wields all the authority, along with all of his associates. Well, who's that? Well, it's a select few Sadducees. They weren't the dominant ones. The fa- there were more Pharisees. By the way, it was the Pharisees mostly who harassed Jesus for three years. Only rarely did you see the Sadducees involved. With the apostles, it's just the opposite. It's the Sadducees who continue to harass the apostles for some reason. Spearheaded by Caiaphas. Uh, rose up with all his associates, a select few of the Sadducees, and they were filled with, there it is, jealousy. Filled with rage. They were jealous of the apostles because the apostles were teaching the Bible. That's what the Sadducees and Pharisees were supposed to do. The apostles were doing miracles. Sadducees couldn't do that. The apostles were gathering a crowd in the respect of the people. The Sadducees wanted that. Didn't have it. So verse 18, what do they do? Laid hands on the apostles. That means they arrested the apostles, just like they did to Peter and John. Go out in a rage. They arrest the Now, this is risky. They've got to go out in the crowd of 20,000 people and arrest all 12 of the apostles. 
Shut this thing down. They put them in a public jail. This is a different place where Peter and John were put. John and Peter, Peter were probably put in some little private room for a night. This is the public jail. The Greek adjective could also be translated as they were arrested publicly. Uh, the Sadducees wanted to make them a spectacle and when warn the people, you follow these guys, do what these guys do, speak in their name. This is where you're going, the public jail. Who went to the public jail in Jerusalem? It was not a part of the temple precincts. Uh, the worst of criminals, murderers, sent people on death row. That's where these guys are going, in the tank, and that's what they did. Twelve apostles put them in a public jail, verse 19. But during the night, during the night, it's dark. During the night, something happened. An angel, an angel. The Sadducees, this is ironic, the Sadducees don't believe in angels. An angel of the Lord appeared or opened the gates of the prison and taking the 12 apostles out. And then the angel said to the apostles, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. That's where the Sadducees don't want them. You go right back to the temple. You go right back to where the Sadducees told you you weren't supposed to go and preach. And you go and do exactly what they told you not to do. And that's preach in the name of Jesus about this life, eternal life in Christ. So those were the orders from the angel of God. Go stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole, this whole message of this life, eternal life that is in Christ's name. Verse 21, the 12 apostles upon hearing this from the angel, man, they just obeyed. They entered into the temple about daybreak and, be, and began to teach. Can you imagine what a celebration? How exciting is that? Wow, I don't know who that guy was. He was... Was that an angel? And so they go to the temple. It's early in the morning and they are back to teaching and preaching about Jesus in Solomon's portico. And there are thousands of people as they're coming for morning prayer. Meanwhile, the Sadducees have no idea in the Sanhedrin that this is going on. They have no idea that they got out of prison. They had no idea. They're ready to convene uh, a session of the Sanhedrin and have court. So and the apostles be arraigned early in the morning. So they're totally ignorant of what just happened. Verse 21 Second part says, now when the high priest and his associates came that morning to the, they called a council together. We're going to have another session, 71 of the Sanhedrin. They're going to put the apostles on trial, semicircle right in the middle and interrogate them and intimidate them. So they think when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the Senate of the sons of Israel, that authority over the entire nation of Israel. And they sent orders to the prison house for the apostles to be brought out of the public jail to the courtroom, verse 22, but the officers who came did not find the 12 apostles in prison or the public jail. And so they returned and reported back to the Sanhedrin, verse 23, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely. And the guards even standing at the doors at their post, clueless. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Their response should have been, wow, that's amazing. How did that happen? That could have been one response. Or the other response could have been suspicion. Oh, we've got a traitor on the inside who unlocked the door and let them out. That's what they had to conclude because they don't, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. Somebody is in cahoots. We have a conspiracy or a potential coup going on here. Found no one inside. So that takes us to verse 24, uh, number three, which is perplexity where it's evident that unbelievers, they don't understand how God operates. They can't recognize a miracle of God when they see one. They can't uh, see the goodness of God when they see it, when people being healed. And the good message that the apostles brought, a message of hope and salvation in Christ from the Old Testament, which supposedly the Sadducees believed. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple guard, that's like, 
the ranking official who was responsible for prisoners, responsible for safety on the temple grounds, second in command next to the high priest, the big cheese. So now when the temple of the, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of it. What in the world? How did they get out? Where did they, what's going on? Verse 25. But someone came, a, a snitch. Maybe a priest. We don't know who this guy is or who this person is. Verse 25. But someone came and reported to the Sanhedrin in the courtroom. I saw them. The men whom you put in prison, the 12 apostles, they are standing right now in the temple and they are teaching the people. Just as you told them not to do. For the very reason you just arrested them yesterday. Verse 26. Then the captain of the guard, he went along with the officers, the policemen. They got their cuffs. They got their billy clubs. They got their laser guns. They got who else knows what they had. And they are going to make an arrest. They proceeded to bring the apostles back without violence. What does that mean? Well, they didn't want to cause a ruckus. Why? For they get this. The Sadducees, the Pharisees. These guys, the captain of the temple guard, they were afraid of the people. Why? Because there were so many people that were loyal to the apostles in the church. And they literally feared the mob or the crowd so that if they took the 12 apostles for a second time in 24 hours, they might get stoned to death. Stoning. So they didn't want to get stoned at the end of verse 26. Verse 27, when they had... So somehow the... Captain of the temple, Mr. Policeman, Mr. Compromised Policeman, managed to squeak his way through that crowd, get to the apostles, obviously talk to them and coax them and say you're under arrest. And this just shows the submissive attitude of the apostles. They are submitting to authority. Peter wrote in his epistle, submit to all authority. All authority has been established by God. Even pagan authority, ungodly authority, you submit to the authorities. And that is exactly what Peter and the apostles did here. They didn't put up a fight. They didn't resist arrest. They didn't cuff themselves to a pole in public. They went with the policeman in submission to the courtroom. That's how Christians are supposed to behave. They keep the peace. Christians are civil in society. So that's verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council right there in that semicircle, making them stand up. And then the high priest questioned them. He interrogated them. He began to pummel them with questions, question after question. And look at one of his statements, verse 20. He didn't say anything about, hey, first question. Well, how did you guys get out of the prison? That was amazing. Or, wow, all those miracles. That is just unbelievable. You guys are even healing lepers. How do you do that? They just skip all that bypass. They don't even care. They are so blinded by their hatred for Jesus and shutting these guys up. They have a one track mind. They are an objective. Verse 28 saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. They don't even want to say his name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, fill Jerusalem with my teaching. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's exactly what they did. Mission accomplished. Boop, step two. You have fulfilled Jerusalem with your teaching. And by the way, they said your teaching. It wasn't their teaching. 
Peter made that clear already once in the, in the, on trial. He told the Sadducees and the high priest, we are here as ambassadors on behalf of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, predicted in your Old Testament, the one that you crucified. We speak his message in his name. They got that clear. You killed him. They've already said that in chapter 3. And Ananias, they don't want to accept culpability. This man, your message, this man-made teaching in conflict with the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, that's what he's really saying. Your false teaching, your cultic, heretical teaching that's worthy of death, that's what he probably wanted to say. And you intend to bring this man, he can't even say Jesus' name. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon, how dare you? How dare you accuse us, the Jewish leadership, of killing this man, this Jesus, when in Matthew 27, at the public trial before Pilate, these same Sadducees were going around poisoning the crowd of Jewish people to shout something very specific, crucify him, crucify, it wasn't stone him, it wasn't burn him with fire, because there were other ways to implement capital punishment in the Old Testament. They were very specific. They knew this rare form of execution in the book of Deuteronomy. Crucify, you know what that means? Hang him on a tree. Hang him on a tree. Only the cursed are to be killed by hanging on a tree. That was reserved for the worst conceivable criminals. And that is exactly what the crowd began to shout. Crucify him, crucify him, hang him on a tree. He is accursed of God. And you know what? The Sadducees, they were spearheading that cheer. And another thing that the Sadducees right here, this same leadership spearheaded among the crowd was said, let his blood be upon us and our children. They already publicly admitted that. And here they're saying, how dare you accuse us that this man's blood be on our head? They've already admitted that publicly. They're the, the ultimate hypocrites. Shirking responsibility. God's curse was upon them. They don't get it. They don't understand God's sovereignty and how he moves. They have utter perplexity, blindness. Number four, authority, verses 29 to 33. So the trial goes on. you got 71 men. They wield all the power. They have all the authority. They're looking down on the 12 apostles who are utterly defensive. They are raising their voice. They are scolding them. They are threatening them. They are intimidating them. But the Spirit of God is with the 12 apostles with supernatural power as Jesus promised he would. And he said, fear not, fear not when they bring you before the courts. Fear not about what you will say. Fear not, the Spirit of God will be with you. Fear not, the Spirit of God will empower you. The Spirit of God was ministering to the 12 apostles because look at Peter's response. He is not intimidated in the slightest. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That is just utterly profound. That statement is from Almighty God himself. There is no way in the world Peter could have so concisely on the spot in the face of that kind of intimidation come up with that statement. That was revealed by God himself through his spirit because they had no argument to that. They couldn't disagree with it. As men who profess to believe in Yahweh and the Old Testament, this was their allegiance that they professed. They knew that they had to, according to the Bible, their Old Testament, the Mosaic law, they had to give allegiance to God before men. That was their statement of faith. They believed in the Pentateuch. They knew the story 
of Exodus chapter 1. And the Hebrew midwives who knew they had to obey God and not obey Pharaoh and save the lives of those young babies. This was a, a truth that they ascribed to her, so they said. And so Peter says that we must obey God rather than men. And just silenced them. Probably stunned. Verse 30. And then Peter preaches a mini-sermon. The God of our fathers. The God of our fathers. We're all Jews here. We all claim to believe in Yahweh in the Old Testament. The God, the God, our God. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. This was highly offensive. Hey, Peter, you said that earlier. Quit mentioning that name. They raised up Jesus. Jesus means, it was Hebrew. God saves, Yahweh saves. Yahweh's Savior. You can see how they thought that was blasphemous. Yahweh raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death. This is the second time he is doing this in the courtroom. That you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Deuteronomy. You were saying that Jesus was accursed. Verse 31. He, this same Jesus, who you said was accursed, that you killed, he is the very one whom God exalted. You cursed him, God exalted him. That is the ascension. God crowned him Lord. God crowned him ruler. God crowned him king. God crowned him prince. Exalted him to his right hand as a prince. There it is. He is Lord. He has authority. He's in charge. He fulfills the Old Testament. The prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah said that the, the Messiah would come as the son of God. Isaiah 9, 6. And his, he'd, have a wonder, he'd be the wonderful counselor. And the prince of peace. He is prince. The Jewish Messiah and Savior. They already said in chapter 4, verse 12, there's only one way to be saved. It is through the name of Jesus. The name you deplore so much through Jesus and through him alone. And God exalted him to grant repentance to the nation of Israel. You know, this is kind of the last plea on behalf of God and his grace to the Jewish leadership who has already rejected their Messiah. This is the second time Peter is pleading them through God's Grace in his heart of compassion for sinners. I plead with you. This is your Savior. This is the uh, Savior of the Old Testament, the Messiah. And it's only through him you can be saved. And he died. He rose again. He ascended on high so that repentance might be allowed for all of Israel. And that includes you, Caiaphas, and you, Annas. Repent. Peter's calling him to repentance. Do you know Saul of Tarsus could very well be in this room on the Sanhedrin of 71? He was the teacher of the teachers. He was one of the most prestigious Pharisees and that this council was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. It is very likely that Saul is here listening to Peter preach. It could be. Not necessarily, but it could be. And so he's just preaching the gospel, repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You can be forgiven. These guys could be forgiven. That's how amazing, gracious God is. Verse 32, and and we are witnesses. We, the apostles, are witnesses. We, we are eyewitnesses. We saw it. It is objective. This is based on historical fact and truth of these things. It's not a myth. And so is the Holy Spirit. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What an amazing promise. You become a Christian, you receive the Spirit of God. He lives in you all of your days until Jesus comes again, until you die and go to heaven. The Spirit is with every believer. Verse 33. But when they heard this... 
when they heard this. Remember chapter 2 when Peter preached the gospel to all those Jews, thousands of Jews, and at the end of his sermon, it said, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. When the Sadducees heard this from Peter, they were pierced to the heart. But there's two different reactions. In chapter 2, they were pierced to the heart and said, Peter, what must we do? And he said, repent and be saved, and they did. 3,000 souls, that is not what happens here. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick or pierced to the heart in their conscience. And as a res- they were filled with fury and anger. And as a result, they intended to kill the apostles. That was their response. They are going to do this, by the way. 11 out of the 12 apostles were murdered by Christ haters. So let's go on to the next point. So that's... Uh, 39, 29 to 33 is, even though the Sadducees think they're in charge, I want to emphasize authority. Actually, God is in charge. He has all authority, and he's delegated that authority to Peter. So Peter's actually the one putting them on trial. How ironic, because he's speaking with the authority of Almighty God. 34 to 40, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, this was Paul's mentor when Paul was Saul and uh, an unbeliever and a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a Christian hater. He studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was very famous. He's even in uh, secular literature as a famous person. This is real history. This is a real man. This is not mythology like people try to say the Bible is. This is real history. Gamaliel, very well known. Grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who was very well known. So Gamaliel is among this group of Sadducees, and he's going to try to sober things and bring some level-headedness from his perspective or objectivity. He hated the Sadducees, by the way. He's a Pharisee. He can't stand the Sadducees. But they have to serve on this committee together. It's like, you know, the Democrats and Republicans. And my enemy is, or your enemy is my enemy, is my friend is your enemy. Well, anyway, so they're friends here because they have a common enemy in Jesus. So Gamaliel is going to offer some advice, practical advice. Uh, he was a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. Everybody respected him. He stood up in the council, the Sanhedrin, gave orders. Okay, get rid of these 12 guys. We got to talk. So they are dismissed. Verse 35, and Gamaliel said to the men there, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis, some guy named Thutis, we don't know who he is. He rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined his group. 400 men. (laughs) The the church has like 20,000 people on the temple precincts. 400 men, small group. There's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, but Thutis, he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed. And that movement came to nothing. It died in and of itself. It imploded, fizzled out 37. After this man, Thutis, another guy came along, Judas of Galilee. We do know about this guy, AD six, about the time of the birth of Christ. He was a Jew. He rose up in the days of the census. This is not the census where Jesus registered. This is a different census. And this Jewish fellow named Judas drew away some people after him to join his cause. He too perished. He he was killed. And all those who followed him were scattered. Boop. It came to naught. So don't worry about this fledgling little group. It's just a movement. It's just a temporary cause that will fizzle out in time. That's what Gamaliel is saying, verse 38. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. Let them alone. Let them alone. Well, they don't let them alone because they beat them 30 times before they let them go. But he does say, let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Now, that sounds profound, insightful, and true. And there is a seed of truth there. 
but this isn't always true what Gamaliel's saying. Bad causes are not always overthrown and come to naught. There are some really bad things that have been with us for hundreds of years and even centuries. Really. And they're growing and taking over the world. This is human wisdom that Gamaliel is offering. That's why on number five, the key word there is duplicity. Duplicity. He has ulterior motives here. Gamaliel isn't operating with pure motives according to the plan of God. He's still a Pharisee. He still hates Jesus. Could very well be that he's one of the ones spurring Saul of Tarsus on to make all those arrests and kill Christians because he was so influential. He just wants to make a phony alliance probably with the Sadducees. So in the present, just leave him alone. It's of God. You can't do anything against it. Verse 40. So they took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They whipped them 39 times. On the, they stretched them out, whipped them on the back 39 times. You, weren't, you could whip somebody 40 times according to the Old Testament. They did 39 just to make sure they didn't exceed that in sin. They did it right there. Whipped them 39 times. Some people wouldn't survive the whipping of 39 lashes. Some people would die. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released him. So they said it again. By the way, the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians that as a Christian apostle, he was whipped with 39 lashes five times. I just couldn't help but thinking, was Paul here among the Sanhedrin who whipped the apostles 39 times? What was Paul thinking later when he became an apostle, a Christian, and he's being whipped 39 times for the cause of Christ? That's why he said in Timothy that he was the worst of sinners. He was the worst. Duplicity. God uses and overrides evil plans. So God overrides Gamaliel's advice and the actions of the Sadducees to further the mission of the church, which is number six, constancy, verses 41 and 42. The apostles carry on the ministry. They haven't been intimidated. They're not going to shut up. They didn't, regardless of the whipping, they didn't whine and complain about the whipping. Their response was categorically different because look at 41. So the apostles are released after getting whipped and they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing, meaning while they're walking away, the Sanhedrin can hear the apostles rejoicing, praising, praise God, praise Yahweh. Can you believe this is awesome? How glorious to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus because they are rejoicing while they are on their way. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. If you are a Christian and you have been persecuted on behalf of Jesus Christ, rejoice. Rejoice, Jesus said, for you are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. The fact that we could be... we They're really trying to kill Jesus when they persecute us. Either with their words or their actions. Their target is Jesus. That is cause for rejoicing. Verse 42, they continue on. They meet with the saints again and every day. Last thing, last orders, do gag order. Do not preach any more in the name of Jesus, especially in our temple. Verse 42, and every day in the temple. From house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. That is amazing. What I mean, just what courage. What a turnaround for Peter and all those fearful apostles. Oh, ye 
Jesus always used to tell them. They were so weak in faith. And now they are just unflappable. And a boundless faith and courage and trust in Almighty God as the Spirit of God leads them. You know, that same Spirit is available. Maybe you're not an apostle, and I'm not an apostle. We don't do their miracles. But the same Spirit of God that indwelt the apostles and empowered them is the same Spirit of God that lives in you today if you're a Christian. We have the same resources of just amazing supernatural power. That is awesome. That is if you know Jesus Christ. I want to close with this. And actually... um, we have the privilege now of going to communion, the Lord's table. And if, if you're a Christian, I would invite you to join us. You are welcome to be a part of uh, communion this morning. Jesus gave his church two ordinances, we call them. One was baptism. Keep preaching the gospel. When people get saved, baptize them, dunk them in water as a symbol that they got saved and cleaned by the gospel. And then the other ordinance I want you to keep doing until I return is communion. So when you gather together as Christians of the body of Christ, this is something you do as the church gathered. That's the only example of communion in the Bible, in the New Testament. This isn't something you do by yourself at home with nobody around. It's communion. Communion means the community of people, saints together, the body of Christ before Almighty God. So it's the community of saints communing with God the Father, uh, with the bread and the wine or the bread and the drink, the bread representing the body of Jesus Christ and the drink representing his blood that he gave on behalf of sinners. And so as we partake of communion today, when it comes around uh, from our ushers, you can grab uh, a cup there and it's got uh, the cup and the bread together in one cup. And, and just hold on to that while you're waiting for others. So, men, you can come up to the front here and begin to pass those out. And and while you're waiting, I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to meditate and do what Paul said to do. Um, and Paul emphasized when you have communion as a church and as a body, he said, examine yourself. Examine yourself in, in terms of our heart, our sin. If we have uh, sin, we need to confess to Jesus. During communion is the time to do it. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to search you as well and reveal things. Because if you're a Christian harboring sin, it is detrimental for you practically. If you're harboring sin towards somebody... You have unforgiveness or some hidden sin you're keeping in a corner that squelches the spirit of God as a Christian and it hinders our growth. You know what? It robs us of our joy. If we don't confess sin. It also impedes our relationship with God. So there are many detrimental effects of having unconfessed sin in our life. So communion, it's a beautiful thing where we have to do maintenance and house cleaning and and be honest before almighty god and ask him to search our hearts soften our hearts ask him to examine us confess your sin says first john 5 and also it's a time of worship and thanking god god thank you for sending jesus to be the savior the blessed savior who who died and saved me thank you jesus for forgiving me of all of my sin i rejoice in you today i worship you so that's what I'm going to give you a couple minutes to do. I just want to read a verse from 1 Peter. If you want to turn in your Bible there, you can. 1 Peter chapter 2. The theme of, of Peter is all about suffering as a Christian. And how do we deal with persecution from unbelievers? And, and that's what um, oops, that's what um, the early church is experiencing. So listen to this from Peter 
Who, who knows what he's talking about? Because he endured suffering and was under duress. And he is our example. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For you, Christian, you've been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer for Jesus. Since Christ also suffered for you, he left you an example that we would follow in his steps. If we follow in his steps, we're going to be persecuted. Verse 23, Jesus didn't revile when he was persecuted. He didn't retaliate. He didn't utter threats. Verse, then go to chapter 3, verse 14. But Christian, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are blessed. Sometimes we can't see how we're blessed, but we are before the eyes of God. And then verse 17 of chapter 3 in Peter, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer. So God allows suffering in our life for a reason, for many reasons. So accept it as the will of God. He knows best that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So just uh, we want to entrust God's sovereignty with any trials and suffering that we might endure in the name of Christ. And with that, let me go ahead and pray for us before we have uh, communion this morning. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this day, the gathering of the saints, uh, the privilege to worship you corporately. We thank you for the Bible, the word of God, for preserving it and also teaching us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember the story of the apostles and apply and implement practical truths that are still for us. Salvation in Christ, the indwelling spirit. Give us boldness, Lord, to be faithful in living our life for you, even in the face of critics. And now, God, we just commit our hearts before you that you would, through your Holy Spirit, examine us and reveal sin that we might bring it to the cross. Thank you for forgiveness that comes in our crucified and risen Lord. So now I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to meditate in your own heart. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.